You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. Up until this point, we've been talking about all of the other things that God created that were a part of the physical universe. But the sixth day of God's creation has to be considered the grand epitome of all that exists, of all that God has created. I'm referring to mankind, God's ultimate handiwork and centerpiece of creation. Think of it in this way. It was the peak of God's creation. Maybe you've heard the creation story a thousand times, and it doesn't feel very new. But today, Pastor Mike will examine a very special part of this story. It's our story. Without the sixth day, we wouldn't be here. You and I wouldn't exist. This is the story about how we came to be. It's also the story of a creative, loving God who deserves all glory, honor, and praise. As you listen, you're participating in an act of worship where we open our ears and hearts to the life-giving breath of our Creator. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 1 as he begins his message, The Sixth Day. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So listen, let's get right to it. And that brings us to our first point, and that is God's crescendo. Now, the sixth day of God's creation, up until this point, we've been talking about all of the other things that God created that were a part of the physical universe. But the sixth day of God's creation has to be considered the grand epitome of all that exists, of all that God has created. I'm referring to mankind, God's ultimate handiwork and centerpiece of creation. Think of it in this way. It was the peak 
of God's creation. And from henceforth, in the book of Genesis, but not only in the book of Genesis, but throughout the entire rest of the Bible, it is the story of mankind, good and bad. Bad because, unfortunately, it's the story of man's rebellion against God and its consequences. But on the other hand, it is good because it is all about God's plan to overcome sin by God's love and redemptive work. And so men and women are the highest forms of God's creation. Notice they were to rule over all else. And uh, the writer of this book of the Bible, who I believe was Moses, I believe Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch. But notice the author was very careful to let us know that mankind was to rule over all else. And it's used there to infer that by God saying, let them have dominion over all things. Now, you know, first of all, let, let me mention that when we see this, you know, after God created the physical universe, just going right through, through it, all of the different orders of creation and species and, and categories and such, and, and uh, at every juncture he said it was good. It was good. And then he went on here, according to our text in the sixth day, to create mankind. But then he said, hey, listen, it's all for you to enjoy. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. You know, in, in this, I, I think that this refutes a lot of misconceptions that man have about God. The wrong concepts that they have about God. You know, some people think that God is seeking to withhold things that would bring satisfaction unto man. That would stifle them in, in enjoying their lives or having fun or that God is seeking to prevent them from those kinds of experiences. But just the opposite is true, you see. When God created the physical universe and all that was within it, all that was good, he said, man, have dominion over it. It's all yours for the enjoyment, you see. And so it kind of blows holes in that whole misunderstanding and concepts that men have about God, that God wants to withhold from man, things that are good. Now, how does man have dominion over all things? Well, simply, according to our text of Scripture, and this will become more obvious as we continue to move through this section of our study in the book of Genesis, is by virtue of their ability to know and serve God. That's the link. Let me say that again. Having dominion, enjoying all of that God has created, how does that happen? How are we able to have dominion over all that God has created for us? By virtue of our ability to know and serve God. And, but we've, we've gotten it confused. We've gotten it mixed up. We've turned it around, right? It, it, it's the, the true way of enjoying all of, of what God has created, what God has prepared for mankind. Now, that brings us to our second point, and that is in the likeness of the Trinity. And notice the writer, who I believe was Moses again, was very careful to point out that man was created in the image and the likeness of God. But don't misunderstand what this is suggesting to us. 
because this has nothing to do with the physical image of God. Because remember, God doesn't have a physical body. God is a spirit. So then, what is the writer referring to here in this text of Scripture? Well, it refers to the trinity of our nature, man being a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. In other words, we are in the likeness of righteousness and true holiness. This is the way that God originally created us. That is, we possess the attributes of God's personality, the things that link man to God. What are those things? Knowledge, love, worship, responsibility, and all of what God has created. Think about this. It is in the Spirit alone where God communes with us. In fact, as a cross-reference for this, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 16, we're told that it's his spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, you see. And it's only through the spirit where God communicates to mankind, where we are aware of God as we should be. Think about it. God to us as believers who are born again of the Spirit of God. God is not some kind of an abstract concept, some kind of an idea, not a part of our theology, something that we read out of a textbook, right? But it's a reality. I mean, he's just as real to me as any other individual in my life's experience. My wife, my children, those that are my friends, those that are closest to me. God is a reality. He's not some concept. He's not some idea. He's not some dead theology. He's a reality in our lives, right? We know that he's here in this place this morning, don't we? And not just simply on the basis of what the word tells us, where two or more are gathered together. There he is in the midst of us. We know that to be true because we know that God's word is true, but we know that he's here. There's no debate about it in our minds for those of us who are born, because God Witness that to us in our spirit. You see, we are God's unique and valued companions. Do you know that? Do you feel that way? Have you experienced that for yourself? Now, to support that comment that I've just made, that is that we are God's unique and valued companions, to support this, we only need to think of the Bible's teaching concerning Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride, in many different places throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Like, for example, in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, when uh, the angels with the bold judgments, you know, cry out and they're, and they're uh, exhorting us to come to see this new city of Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven, and those who are going to enter into it, and they are described for us in this way the bride of Christ, the Lamb's wife, the Lamb's wife, the church. That's who we are. Brought together to love, to experience intimacy, to share, to work alongside of one another. And so to support this, we need only to think of the Bible's teaching concerning Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. Is there any more intimate kind of a relationship than that which exists between a husband and a wife. Now, that brings us to our third point 
and that is marred by sin. And if you're taking notes, write this down, marred by sin. Now, this picture that I've just painted for you, considering man as God made him and intended him to be, you know, just God wanted to bless him and pour out a blessing on, on top of blessing. All of what he created was for the benefit of mankind. This was all before the fall and the introduction of sin. You see, although we've been made in God's image, as we've already been talking about, with all of these wonderful capacities to know God, to know him, to experience him, to have fellowship and communion with him, unfortunately, that image has been marred by sin. And today, think about this. Man, for the most part, only shows minute glimpses of who God is. You see, man is a fallen being. And the effects of the fall are quite evident, body, soul, and spirit. Now, when God set up that whole test, if you will, if I could refer it to a test, I guess that's probably an accurate way to describe the forbidden tree. Remember, after God had created all of the physical universe, he only laid one restriction upon man. And there were many different trees with all kinds of different fruits. And remember, they were all bearing of the same kind. If they planted an apple tree, the seed would produce another apple tree. So it wasn't like there were, there was, you know, there were plenty of other trees in the garden. There was just one prohibition, one restriction that God gave to man. It was all yours to enjoy. Just go for it, right? It's yours for the taking, right? He says, but one restriction. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man didn't like that, you see. Because, you know, unfortunately, you know, man just doesn't like the idea of restrictions being placed upon him. What is it about human nature? When we understand those restrictions after knowing God, after knowing that God is good and he's always got our backs and whatever he's doing is for our good and for our, our blessing, you would think that we would learn by that and, you know, we would obey those things that he's restricted us from in being involved in. But no, one restriction, one stinking restriction, right? Wouldn't you know it? It's sort of like, you know, I always think about this. You know, you're walking down the street and you see a sign and it says wet paint. Inevitably, you got to go over there and you got to stick your finger on where that sign is, right, to see if it's still wet. What is it with mankind, right? I mean, it's so obvious. You know, you, if you do it, you're going to be hurt. You, you're going to experience damage. But it, I don't know what it is about mankind. But anyway, think of it as a test, if you will. The forbidden tree in the garden. If you think about it, it was to measure man's obedience towards the one who created him. In fact, let's jump ahead quickly to Genesis chapter 2, and I'm not going to get into this in great length and detail because we're going to save it for one of our future studies where we are going to get into it in great length and detail, and we're going to talk about the nature of mankind, and we're going to, we're going to give a bunch of different examples and illustrations as it relates to this. But notice in chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17, there you have the record of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And listen, there was, there was lots of them. There was all kinds of trees. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will surely die. So the one restriction, the one warning. Now, again, without giving you all of the details, we'll save that for a future study, Adam and Eve disobeyed. They failed. They rebelled. And consequently, now follow along with me, and remember now, man as a trichotomy, made in the image of God, right? The trinity of man, body, soul, and spirit. Now hold on to that thought, okay? Think about this now. They disobeyed, they failed, they rebelled, and consequently, man's spirit, that part of him that had communion with God, died instantly. God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But he didn't die physically. So what, what, what are we talking about here? He died spiritually. They ran, at that point, they ran from God. When God came into the garden, you know, to check these guys out, Adam and Eve, what did you do? What happened? What did they do? They ran away from God. They hid themselves from God. How strange from God's original plan that man would hide from them. That was never God's intention. That was never God's plan. You know, how many people today, think about this, none of you, of course, because that's why you're here, but how many people, you know, aren't in church? And if you think about it, they're running away from and hiding from God. And there's a variety of different ways that man goes about doing that. And I don't want to go into all of the, the different ways of going and doing that because we've all been there. We've all tried to that escape God in one way or another, but praise God, he's the hound of heaven, and he found us, right? Man, aren't you glad, right? Never gave up on us. Praise the Lord for that. So anyway, they ran from God. They hid themselves from God in the garden. How strange from God's original plan. But it's the same even today. It's been the same ever since. Man seeking to run away from God. So then man's soul, his intellect, his feelings, his identity, and think about that. That was, that was the way that the first man and the first woman was created in their identity, right? To know God, to fellowship with God. But unfortunately, it began to die because of their disobedience. And thus, they lost the sense of who they were. Think about that. We were created, right? I mean, there was no question about it, but the first man, the first woman. I want you to think about this. This is something that's so foreign to us. Maybe something that you've never even considered before. But in the original state, when God created the first man, the first woman, there, was no, there wasn't any kind of a doubt. We, we know that we were created to know you, God, to fellowship with you, God, to have communion with you, God, to serve you, God. There was no question about that until sin entered into the picture. There was something that they knew intuitively. It was a desire that was placed innately within their hearts, you see. But because of their disobedience, we've lost, man has lost their identity, you see. The sense of who they are. And thus, this gave way to bad feelings. And man suffered the decay of their intellect because of that. You say, how? Well, let me give you a cross-reference for this. In Romans chapter 1, in verses 21 through 23, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, 
nor were thankful, but became futile or empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. How many people today are professing to be wise? But as the way that God sees them, they're nothing more than a bunch of fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Rather than worshiping the creator, they begin to worship creation, you see. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Oh, man. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite commentators, uh, anything that you can get your hands on, uh, written by Barnhouse, would certainly be a uh, worthwhile addition to your own personal libraries. But Barnhouse, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, uh, likened this unto a three-story house, body, soul, and spirit, the trichotomy of man, being made in the likeness of the Trinity, okay? He likened this unto a three-story house that was bombed during an airstrike. When the bomb fell, it took out the top floor entirely, the debris of which had fallen down into the second floor, severely damaging it, and then the weight of the two ruined floors produced cracks in the walls of the first floor, and eventually it was doomed to collapse. And that's the actual effect of sin that has had upon mankind in their trichotomy, the trichotomy of man, body, soul, and spirit. So it was with Adam. His body was the dwelling of the soul, and his spirit was above that. And when Adam fell, the spirit was entirely destroyed, the soul ruined, and the body destined to a final collapse. You see, that was the effect of sin upon the first man, the first woman. And it's been the same ever since. But praise the Lord, this brings us now to our fourth and our final point, and that is the glorious gospel. The glorious gospel. The gospel means good news. And boy, is it good news. Now, although this account describes man before the fall as he intended us to be, well, we know the horrible outcome. We know how this whole thing played out because of Adam's disobedience. But it is also a picture of what can be recaptured by sinning man through Jesus Christ. And the glory of the gospel is exactly about that. That's the message of the gospel. That which was lost through sin can be recaptured through the person of Jesus Christ. You see, when God saves a person in Christ, he saves the whole person. He begins with the Spirit. And we're born again of the Spirit of God. And thus now, once again, he can communicate together with God. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be. When something gets close to an ending, we naturally turn our attention to the beginning. When a child is about to graduate, we look at baby pictures. When a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death, we go over the story of how we met. When we pack up our stuff and move away from a house, we remember the first times we walked in the door. 
And as we draw close to the end of days, it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, harvestnyc.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcast. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time here in my father's house. <laughs>